Eric, thanks so much for those prayers. Right on point, certainly with the text for today. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and today we're going to talk about the way of the cross. And it's a fairly long text, so what I'm going to do today is just kind of break it up into pieces and speak about it along the way so that we can get through this together. And let's start by thinking really sort of about the framing of it by Paul himself at the end, where he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. That's toward the end of this text. If you're uh, following along there and you have your your Bibles open, uh, you'll see at the end of chapter 4, right there in verse 20, there's only 21 verses, for the kingdom of God is not a power of talk, but of uh, power. And what Paul is saying there, and he's been arguing from the beginning, is that the, uh, the power of the cross is transformative. In other words, he's saying that the only way that I can write to you or how I initially came to you is because something happened in his own life that transformed him and put him on a completely different path. And the source of that was the work of Christ on the cross. And that is a transforming work. If you turn back to chapter 1, for example, look at verse 17. Chapter 1, verse 17 said, says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. When Paul came to these people and he began to declare the gospel, the good news of Christ, he didn't do it in a way. And it was important for him to say this because in their context, they were taken in by people who could use words really well. Paul apparently wasn't, wasn't somebody who constructed sentences in a way that was compelling. And he probably wasn't writing ads for Nike to get people to buy what he was selling. That's not how he came. He came in weakness and in trembling, and most importantly, not with words of human wisdom, because the power was not resident in him. It was in what Christ had done, and as he declares that, the power of the cross then could be true for you as well. He's telling the Corinthians, and that's why in verse 18, he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When Paul says the kingdom of God is not one of talk, but of power, the power he's talking about to them is the power he was talking about already or in chapter one. It's the power resident in the cross, what Christ himself has done. And that power is transformative. It changes us. This week when we were doing a, a Bible study with uh, some, some people, after one of our English classes, uh, as we gather and we're going through the book of John, we're in that part, going very, very slowly through it, where it says, yet to all who received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God, to become sons of God. And a lady who was there who does not come from a, a Christian background, a, a country that has largely been hostile toward uh, Christianity in general, asked a really good question. She said, what, what difference does it really make if you're a child of God? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't the kind of question that was hostile. It was a curiosity question. 
what difference does it really make? Like, I know I've known a lot of people. I hear you guys saying you're Christians. What difference does it really make if I become a child of God? And that's a, that's a reasonable question to ask. That's a, that's a good question. So those of us who uh, would consider ourselves, uh, I guess there was one son and two daughters present uh, then, two gave our, our best efforts at, us, at that. But part of what Paul's saying is this. We have been transformed by the power of the cross. That power is transformative. That is distinctive. Not everybody knows that power. That's a question Paul is also concerned about. He's saying to the Corinthian church, what difference does it make that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and he can transform you? He's explaining to them what that difference is. And in fact, in the verse just before the text we'll look at in a moment in chapter 3, we ended last week by looking at Paul's description here, really starting in verse 21, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. This kind of cosmic vision of what belongs to the children of God. And I love how he gives time markers on there, the, the present and, and the future as well, that the power of the cross does make a difference in everything no matter what the, the time frame might be. For example, how does the power of the cross make a difference in the past? Somebody who knows and understands this kingdom of God and the power that comes only in the cross. How does that change the past? Here's, here's how it ought to make a difference. If you're somebody who knows the power of the cross and you look in your past and you see that list of things that you've done wrong, and when it comes, when either Satan himself or your own guilty conscience or a friend or a spouse or somebody says to you, look at what you did in the past, what you can do is say, but Christ dealt with that on the cross. And there is no more guilt. And the guilt then, the residual guilt that you feel doesn't, doesn't, that is meant for you to be free from. It's for freedom that Christ came to set you free from your past. And so that's at least one of the differences that the children of God can know, where the, the glorious freedom of the children of God, when those whispers of you don't deserve, you're not worthy, especially those who know the power of the cross, the great leveling ground, you can say, yeah, no, duh, I know I'm not worthy, but Christ is. It frees you from your past. And the power of the cross, what about the present? How does it transform the present? Certainly, we've seen already it's a strength source in trials. And even Paul will intimate that later. Look at what we've been through. But Christ is here with us. He himself suffered on the cross. So you too, as you suffer, have a Savior who knows and understands. He's not distant and removed. It shapes our actions and our motives, as we'll see in this passage too. How do I behave? What do I do? How do I think about this pathway I'm on? Well, the power of the cross makes all the difference, and it transforms the future as well. I, I know that the, if I believe in what Christ has done on the cross, it's, it's a prefiguring in many ways of a day of judgment to come, because we will all have to give account if what the Bible says is true to God. 
for what we have done. And when we look to the future, we could be undone by that reality if we didn't hear Romans 8.1 that says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. On that day of judgment then, when God issues the guilty verdict to you, which we all deserve, his son stands in our place by virtue of his death on the cross and say, I got this. I took on the penalty. That person's not guilty. That's, that's something we can look forward to. In a day also when all striving will cease and perfect peace will be ours, we walk in perfect uni unity with him and with each other for eternity because of what Christ did on the cross. That's it. And Paul wants them and us to know that's the mentality that ought to be so saturating the way we think about the gospel and life that when we get to these daily relationships, it goes back to the power of the cross because we can't do it on our own. Otherwise, it's just a self-improvement project and the person who's got the best packaging and the slickest words is going to win. There's no room for that. Not in God's economy, not in the gospel. But it troubles Paul, of course, in this letter because the actual transforming power of the cross doesn't seem to be taking root. It's, it's, they're not applying it in their daily lives. All this wealth, you have all the riches of Christ, but you're still drawing on your own resources. Stop that foolishness. Stop being a child. Let's grow up into maturity. And their vision of who Paul was, they were kind of doubtful. Like, who are you to talk to us? They'd elevated their own individuals. And so he has to do some work to say, hey, remember, this is God who's called me, and you, my spiritual children, are the ones I'm investing in. So don't dismiss what I'm writing about. That's kind of where he gets in this passage. But what he's fundamentally saying is, look, it's the power of the cross that's different. It's a difference maker. So how do you walk in that way? And he, get, he doesn't tell everything about that, but he starts showing a little bit of what it looks like to walk in the way of the cross in these verses. So what is it? Here's what he talks about. First few verses then, he says the way of the cross, if you're going to walk in it, involves stewardship. There is a stewardship that comes in this process here. And here's what he says in, in the opening verses. So then men ought to regard us, he's talking about the apostles, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. I bolded a couple of words here. If you can see that, that he begins in verse 1 by saying you should look at us as servants of Christ. And for those of you who know some of the Greek, usually servant is like doulos, like a bond slave. In this case, it's oikonomos. So it's a household servant. Back in, in that day, in that time, maybe somebody who owned some property would pay somebody to steward or to manage the household, perhaps even with the kids and tutoring. And that's basically what Paul says God did for me 
he entrusted me and the other apostles as servants, household servants, and you are the children. And my responsibility then is a delegated authority from God, but I am accountable to God for you. You know how that works. You know, if somebody were to come home and kids are disobedient, uh, then they look to the person who's supposed to be in charge of them. Uh, this is Mary Poppins type stuff, if you want a, a modern analogy for that, right? Uh, here's somebody who's in charge of the kids and make sure they're doing all right. And if they aren't, then the consequences come on that person. And Paul's saying, God entrusted to me stewardship of your souls. And I don't take that lightly. So when I come to you as an apostle, it's, it's with that mentality. I've been entrusted with the secret things of God. That is the power of God that's been revealed in the gospel. And it's required by God, in verse 2 of me, to be faithful with that. This is what God entrusted to me, and I have to be faithful. And since he's the master, he's the Lord, he's the master of the house, at the end of the day, I know I'm, I'm concerned about what he thinks of what I've done, not what you think. In a sense, they're like kids, right? And a kid comes and evaluates the person in charge, and their evaluation at the end of the day, like, okay, thanks for the input. But you don't have the whole picture. I'm responsible to somebody else. And that's Paul's mentality here. I'm a steward, and I have to be faithful with that. God eventually will judge me. And there's a day when everything, according to the end of that passage in verse 5, at the appointed time when I look down, when the Lord comes, he's going to bring everything that's hidden out into the light. There, there's a time when all that's hidden now will be exposed, which, by the way, I think is a, a great prayer for those of you who are concerned about your own hearts. God expose what's hidden in the dark or the hearts of others. Uh, I, I know we have a handful of parents here. You'll try this prayer out. God, expose what is hidden in the dark, and then be patient and wait for the appointed time. <laughs> when it comes out, because it's going to. And only God can expose what's underneath, as we've seen along the way in all of the Bible. And what's interesting is Paul is then arguing to this Corinthian church, hey, look, this is my this is my responsibility as a steward, but you have one too. Do you see how he does that at the end? He says, when these things are, are, are brought out from darkness into light in exposing the motives of men's heart, at that time, each will receive his praise from God. So in a sense, he's saying, you know what? I'm a steward. You need to take, you, you need to take that seriously because it's come from God. And so are you. There's a time when you as well will stand and have to give an account for what God has given you. Stewardship, that's, that's a, a very Christian kind of term, perhaps. But you have been entrusted with God for a task that he's placed you to do. Wherever it happens to be, whatever role you serve in right now is entrusted to you by God as a steward. And how are you doing with that? It could be as a student, as a parent, as an employee, as a neighbor. And the call is to faithfulness. 
That's something that in the passage Drew dealt with was clear as well. You know, somebody is supposed to plant and somebody waters, but God gives the growth. So it's not the measurement of growth that matters, but what have you done with what you've been given? Wherever you are, you don't like where you are, I get it. You're still called to that exact place. I know you're called to be where you are because you're there for now. <laughs> so you do it. With steward what you have in front of you and this isn't a concept isolated only to Paul's thinking here. We find it in other places as well. Like, for example, Jesus talks about this in, in Matthew chapter 25. If you are familiar with Jesus' teaching, uh, here he gives a parable in Matthew 25. You can turn there if, you, if you'd like. I don't have it on the, on the PowerPoint, but you'll be familiar probably with this passage we won't go through all of it but just to give you the context of it jesus is telling a parable and he says again it will be like a, a man going on a journey who called his servants servant language again and entrusted his property to them that's exactly the language paul is using to one he gave five talents of money to another two talents and to another one talent each according to his ability and then he went on his journey and down in verse 21, um, after a long time when he returns, his master replied to the one who had invested the amount that he'd been given, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And that's a happy ending. But there's somebody who doesn't take what he's been entrusted and he doesn't use it well, and there's judgment that comes. Look at verse 26. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gathered, where I've not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put your money on deposit with the bankers and take the talent from him, give it to the others as well. So there is a judgment here in this parable about somebody who felt like I don't have very much. I'm concerned about, you know, not get not something about that person's perspective but also mine my own personal the master's but mine as well it says i don't have as much as that person so i'm going to hide it you know the, the, paul seems to be anticipating later in his book when he talks about spiritual gifts we all have different gifts we're all part of one body don't don't set aside your your contribution to that and, and that could be true not only in the church but at home in a family if you feel like you're completely forgotten or set aside you're not god has put you there for a reason and you have to steward or, or treat well what you've been given because you will give an account for that at someday and paul is saying that's how i look at you the way of the cross is the way of stewardship and it's a it's a good thing right no matter who you are if you're walking in the way of cross the cross you have something to steward and as you do that well you get entrusted with more over time Paul has this picture of parenting and childhood so much in this book. And isn't that what it's like? If a child is entrusted with something and they do a good job, they get more. If they don't, they get less. So manage what you have. Steward what you've been given. That's just the way of the cross. And then he goes on to say that the, another aspect of the way of the cross that we see here is in the the interesting passages that follow interesting texts this is, it seems non-responsive at the moment 
because I'm clicking and nothing's happening. Okay. Oh, did it? Oh, communion. We're already in communion. Wow. So the way of the cross, humility. So let's look at this. I'll, uh, I'll stop a little bit along the way. I know it's a big, big chunk. This starts in verse 6. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what was written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So again, he's reminding them, and he's been doing this, of the great leveling ground that happens with the gospel. The power of the cross not only is something that is transformative in terms of your capacity to change, but it also gives you the right perspective on why I'm even in this place. We are all started at the same point all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're no different than anybody else. And yet these people somehow were latching on to something that made them feel a little bit puffed up in measurement. And so Paul reminds them that you don't have anything that you didn't receive. No, nobody. You, you came out with nothing, you're going to return with nothing. Anything in between is ultimately a gift from God. That this is not a new concept either. If you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, this is probably a passage you are familiar with, or maybe for those of you who are students of the Bible, bells and whistles are going off with this kind of language. Because, and you'll see that it's the men's hearts are, are the same always. I mean, Deuteronomy was written a long time ago. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting in verse 10, uh, we read, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you to this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when you hurt your herds and flocks, grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied. In other words, when you've got lots of stuff and you're doing all right and it's going to be pretty easy to look at your house and say, look what I did. And look at your wealth and say, here's, look at my 401k or anything like that. And then when that happens, verse 14, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. Oh, down to verse 17, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. That's not the power of the cross. That's the power of man. How easily you start thinking that. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. That can be on a ministry level or any other level. doesn't matter what it is. Your hearts will slip there quickly as mine will too. In verse 18, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. Humble servants, right? That's what he's been saying. He and his fellow apostles are, and that's what you are to be as well. But that hasn't happened in this passage because he goes on to say, your humility is just a little bit lacking. And now let me drip with satire. 
basically he's saying, is I examine exactly what's happening. You're supposed to have this humble heart receiving uh, the steward that's been put in place, uh, but instead you're in judgment over, over me and you're not receiving things. And here's the kind of way it's going for him. Verse eight, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You've become kings and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put on apostles, us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ. But you, you're so wise in Christ. We are weak. But you, you're strong. You're honored. We're dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work with our hands. And when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. He's turning their argument on their, their its own head here. They're acting like children who pretend to know everything already and have everything already. And he says that's, that's not the case at all. Those of you who are theologians will know the term over-realized eschatology. And for those of you who aren't, try it out on somebody. You know, say, oh, you appear to have an over-realized eschatology. It sounds smart, maybe. Put it on Wordle. I don't play the game, but apparently it's popular. I don't even know if it fits in a Wordle type of scenario. But nonetheless, over-realized eschatology, which just means eschatology is the end times, right? And if it's over-realized, you think too much has been brought into this current time at the moment. And that's one of the problems in the Corinthian church, too. They have an over-realized eschatology. They're expecting too much to have happened already. And Paul's saying, we live as flesh and blood right now, and we're struggling. And Christ brings his power to bear in a unique sort of way. But you apparently are so mature that you no longer have these problems, do you? In other words, you're so spiritually minded, you're no earthly good. You've heard of that as well. And Paul is saying, you've got this all upside down, not in the way that the gospel says. And ironically, it seems like those of us who have been entrusted with the secret things of God have nothing according to you. But he says, you're, you're missing the power of the cross. We have everything. Everything is ours because we are in Christ and Christ is of God. And that power comes from the cross alone. You have forgotten that. And when you forget that, you start looking around with a different mindset. And these are the kind of things that come from it. Instead, if you walk in the way of the cross, you have to have a measure of humility. Because you realize anything you have has come from God. And if you measure according to human standards, we are. We're like the scum of the earth. We're like dirty diapers. Their perspective is off. Their understanding of the gospel is skewed. They're proud. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. And he'll lift you up in due time. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of spirit. I don't have anything on my own. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's humility. That's the power of the cross. Stewardship, humility, and he ends by saying the way of the cross also involves imitation. I'm not writing in verse 14 this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, like proud, right? As if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only the, how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and with a gentle spirit? So Paul here is saying, look, as to talk about the way of the cross, it's all about me being a steward, you being a steward, being filled with a measure of humility. But also there is an opportunity for you as children to have a spiritual father who, who's guiding and shepherding you in the ways of walking like Jesus. You're not designed to do this on your own. And Paul isn't saying, I'm perfect. He's made it clear he's not. Don't say, I follow Paul. You say you follow, ultimately, the, the gospel through, through, through whom God has given me and entrusted to share with you. But you do need somebody like a spiritual father, a spiritual parent. That's what he says he was. I'm writing this to warn you. You know, any father or, or, or parent or guardian who cares about somebody in their charge and sees them doing something that is going to be harmful will do everything they can to steer them away from that. And he's looking, as we'll see at these problems that are about to come, these are harmful to you. So when I write this, it's not to shame you and to call you out and make you feel awful. It's to make sure that you can change what you're doing so that you can grow in the way you're supposed to grow. That's what every caring parent wants for a child, no matter who you are. They may have 10,000 guardians in Christ. That would be a term, again, of others, kind of like uh, people who have been in charge of them and, until they grow up to a certain age. But you only have one father. And he says, I am your spiritual father. He's the one who brought the gospel to them. They all heard the good news of the power of the cross. They responded and said yes to Christ, they become children of God, and it's a difference maker. But then he leaves, and others come in place and start steering them away, and now they just haven't grown much. He says, that concerns me. If you want to walk in the way of cross, you need somebody who's going to be like a spiritual father. I can't get there. I can't go everywhere else, so here's my boy Timothy coming along. You know, he's seen me. He's walked with me. I'm sending him to you, and he's going to walk among you and do the best he can to show you what it looks like to walk in the way of Christ and in the way of the cross. And God's called me to other places, and I wish I could come 
And if, if I did, I, I don't know whether I'd be bringing, you know, a whip because some of you need the, the word of conviction or a gentle spirit because some of you need the word of comfort. Isn't that kind of like raising children as well? For those of you who have had that experience, you know, each kid's kind of different. Some, somebody, uh, and it could be an employer to an employee as well. Somebody needs the harsh word to motivate them and get going and others need the gentleness. This is what I think is so beautiful, by the way, about Christ as shepherd who knows his people. And a shepherd does both, right? He's got, he's got some things sometimes when he's prodding you to something and other times when he's leaving everybody else to go and grab you in his arms. And he knows each one of you intimately, perfectly. He you together in your mother's womb. And he's, he's the one who you call savior. And we, then, who respond to the gospel, you know, somehow God uses us as well. And we have the opportunity to be spiritual parents to others. You know, Mother's Day and Father's Day can be hard for people who've longed to be in that role but can't. But you can all be spiritual parents. And in fact, I would suggest that stewardship and humility factor into that. You have a chance to steward what you've been given. There's always somebody younger. There's always somebody who could learn from you. Most of us, in a false humility, say, I have nothing to offer. That's poor stewardship. Of course you do. Take a look around you. Who are the people God's put in your life that you can offer some spiritual parenting to, no matter who you are? And furthermore, who's somebody that you need to go to for that? as well. I've shared before, for me, I've always had a very high value on seeking out older men who have been walking with the Lord for a long time. They're not, they're not perfect. And that's part of the beauty is they say, son, here are the mistakes I've made along the way. And apparently I'm 85. And I've got false teeth and I'm still making some of them. But praise God, the power of the cross has forgiven me. Here you go. And by the way, I see some things you've got to confess as well. I, I cherish that. Along for that, because I know in some ways I'm still growing in the Lord. Maybe not a child anymore, hopefully not, but I could be kind of a teenager. Wouldn't it be interesting to see our spiritual ages right above our heads right now? Wow, half you guys are in diapers still. Bring out the spiritual diaper pail. And and some of you who, who maybe never even get up front and who kind of you know come in and quietly serve, you're the most mature of all of us. Those measurements that God is using. You're people of prayer and, and people of forgiveness, people of peace. And sometimes the loudest ones are not the most mature. They just like to hear themselves talk. In God's kingdom, stewardship, humility. And, and, and Paul says, look, I know I've been talking about not venerating people too much and lifting them up, but you've also had this thing of devaluing them as well. There's a proper place where you look to people who've walked this way and learn from them. Some of us might learn better from, from people who are dead, <laughs> from books. I've got a lot of dead people counseling me, spiritually parenting me right now in my house. Come on over, take a look. It's just great. They're all right there. And every now and then I'll pull, pull it off and say, wow. I don't want to, I want to look at the historical richness behind the spiritual fathers and mothers who've come before a treasure trove of people who've walked this path already. But it's also great to have somebody in the flesh in proximity to you. That's why he's sending Timothy. 
We need that. Desperately. I wonder who is your spiritual parent? If you're walking in the way of the cross, there's a reason why you're doing this. I mean, Christ breathed new life into your spirit, the, and, and, and the Holy Spirit entered your life, but somebody probably has shepherded you along the way. Why are you not doing that for others, whoever it may be? What a great opportunity to steward what you've been given in humility. And it seems like that's where Paul is headed here because he wants to remind them that even his position here of being a parent didn't come from his own doings. It's not as if, if he were better than anybody else. At the end of his life, he says, I am the worst of sinners. But thank God that he has used me to reach out to other sinners as well. Each one of us has that opportunity. If you're reminded of that on a daily basis, your desperate need for, for Christ and for the cross. And this is the way that he has laid out for us to walk in it. And isn't it great that we have a collection here of uh, mothers and brothers and sisters and, and fathers. And one of the things that uh, you'll probably hear next week from Hashem as he shares is the, the, the rejection he's experienced from his biological family and his wife as well. But the joy he has that he looks around and he can enter here as he did last week and say, these are my brothers and my sisters. And it's not, not just some idea that, that seems out there. For him, that is a true reality. How desperately he needs that. And so do we. And so we look in this journey together and the way of the cross for those who we can imitate and learn from and then do that as well. You know, Paul wrote to Timothy uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He talks about this process of what's been entrusted to me, I've entrusted to you. Now you go and trust to others who will teach reliable individuals too. Four generations. And I mean, our life groups are not, you know, the silver bullet for discipleship, but it's a good start to at least enter into relationships and learn from people who have different perspectives and who may be farther down the road than you are and do that with others too. I think that is the way of the cross that Paul is leading us toward. And so as he sets that up, he's really going to begin kind of rolling up his sleeves and saying there's some hard things to talk about. It, but the transformative power of the cross needs to reach you on the, on, on the most earthy of levels. And you'll start unpacking that. You'll have to wait for two weeks to hear that. Next week, uh, we'll have a brother in the Lord sharing. I, I'm so eager for you to hear his story and for me to hear it again as well. I think it's going to excite us uh, and remind us of the transformative power of God in anybody's life. Nobody's beyond the reach of this power. Nobody. And I have to remind myself of that a lot. Because it seems like sometimes the people close seem like they're the ones farthest away. But nobody's beyond reach of, of Christ. No one. And when we, when we celebrate the, the Lord's Supper, that's part of what we're acknowledging, isn't it? You know, but for the grace of God, there go I. This isn't a, a proud meal. This is a meal of grace. It's actually a grace God's given to us, designed to bolster our faith and to remind us that it was Christ's blood that was shed for us, his body given for us. That's the source of our hope and our power. That's a place where we find ourselves with tremendous humility as we receive it. But also, I think a reminder that we go out as well and represent the gospel to others.